We are in a series called The Last Words of Jesus. And in this series, we're going to be looking at, of course, uh, each of these seven statements, one week at a time in the weeks leading up until Easter. So this morning, we're looking at the statement, one of the ones you just saw on the screen, where Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. This statement is unique among all the statements that we'll be looking at because it's the only one that takes place in the context of a dialogue. So this actually takes place in a conversation that Jesus is having on on the cross. And so we're going to see as we look at this dialogue, these last words of Jesus, that of course there's some of Jesus's final words, but there's also the final words of two other men recorded in here as well. So the book of Luke uh, chapter 32 sets the scene. So let's take a look at that in chapters, or sorry, uh, chapter 23, verse 32 through 33. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now the book of Luke, this is one of four books called the Gospels that are in the Bible and together they tell the story of Jesus. And so we know a lot about Jesus's life up until this point that we read about here. But for these other two men, the one on his right, the one on his left, we really don't know anything about their backgrounds, their stories. But we do know that whatever took place, whatever their past was, their deaths took place in such a way that they were only yards away from where Jesus was having his last breaths and just minutes after Jesus's final breaths as well. And so just as God saw fit to record the last words of Jesus for us to learn from, he also saw fit to preserve for us the last words of these other two men. And so we're going to learn from those as well this morning. Both of these men in their final hours, they had to come to terms, they had to come face to face with the three most important questions that any of us in our lives as well has to answer. So we're going to see in this dialogue of condemned men how each man answers these questions. And the first of those questions that they came face to face with is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now today, that's a question that's still around, obviously. Today, there's no shortage of opinions about who Jesus is. And the same was true even as he walked the earth. There was a lot of opinions. There was a lot of speculation about who he is, who he might be. And the same was even true as he hung there on the cross. We'll see in the following verses, there were a lot of opinions while he was on the cross about who he was and who he was not. So we'll look at these, but first we need to answer the question, who did Jesus claim to be? Before we can answer who is Jesus, it makes sense that we ask, who did Jesus claim to be? If you want to find out who Ethan is, who I am, I would really appreciate it if I was your starting point. If you came and you said, well, who does Ethan say that he is? What does he have to say about himself? And so in that same way, who Jesus claimed to be, that's going to be our starting point for answering this question. And Jesus made some pretty extraordinary claims about himself and about who he was. For example, one of the things he claimed was that he was sent from God, which is, if you think about it, if you really stop and think about it, sent from God, that is a big claim. That really separates you from all of the people around you. I I was sent from God. In John 12, 49, he said, for I did not speak, I, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all the things I have spoken. God sent me, oh, and all of my words, those are actually God's words. Those are the things that he's commanded me to speak. So this claim raised some eyebrows among his listeners. He also claimed that he was the exclusive way to God. 
In John 14, 6, he famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So again, that got some attention to the people who heard him, saying, if you want to know God, then you need to know me first. That's a pretty big claim. He also claimed, and this is perhaps the biggest of all, he claimed to be God in flesh. In John 14, 9, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen me, if you're looking at me, then you're seeing God the Father. That was a pretty big claim. He made many other claims, but it was this claim to be God in flesh that really generated more controversy for him than any of these other things that he said. One example of that is that earlier in his ministry, he was having a conversation that's recorded for us in John 8 where a group of people, there were some, some religious leaders and others in that group, and they were determined to get an answer to this question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that you are? They were grilling him for an explanation. And it came to a point where he said this. He said, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. So kind of a funny sentence there. What's going on with that grammar? Before Abraham was born, I am. Well, first of all, Abraham, we have to understand, Abraham is the, uh, the ancestor that all Jews, including Jesus, descended from. He lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And so Jesus here is saying, before Abraham was around, I was around. I was around before Abraham. That's, that's a pretty big deal right there. That would get some attention in and of itself. But he just doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Instead, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So, again, what's going on there? Well, I am is the name by which God referred to himself in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. It's the name that God called himself. He said, I am, as how he chose to describe himself. So Jesus here is associating himself with the very name of God. And his point here is that not only have I pre-existed your ancestors, but I am the very God who created your ancestors. And those listening to him, they got the point. They knew what he was talking about. And we know that they got the point because of what they did immediately after he said this. The very next thing they did that we read about is they picked up stones and they were going to stone him. They were going to kill him on the spot for him claiming to be God. But this is who Jesus claimed to be. And it made a lot of people mad. It made people so mad that eventually these religious leaders, they would develop a more sophisticated plan to kill him and that's the plan that would culminate in his crucifixion. <clears throat> now, it's common, it's common today, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of speculation still today, it's common to think of Jesus as a good teacher, someone who came and who taught a better way to love each other, a better way that, that, um, that we can interact. Or maybe think of him as a philosopher, a philosopher who has an original take on life's big questions, some really great ideas. But if we limit Jesus' role to that of a teacher, that of a philosopher, then what we're actually doing is we find ourselves in disagreement with Jesus about who Jesus is if we relegate him to those roles. Because this is just not how Jesus spoke about himself. He didn't speak about himself merely as a good teacher or philosopher. And on top of that, it's not how he was perceived of speaking by himself by those who originally heard him. The claims that he made about himself, they actually had a very polarizing effect on those who heard him, which if you think about it, that really makes a lot of sense. When someone claims to be God, it probably should have a polarizing effect. For example, if I stood up here and I said with a straight face in front of all of you 
made the claim that I was God, well, I hope it would have a polarizing effect on you. I hope that your reaction to that would not be to say, you know what? Okay, yeah, Ethan thinks he's God, but he's also just a really nice guy. So I know that God thing, that's a little quirk. It's kind of, it's kind of goofy, but he's also a really nice guy. So I, I, I don't believe him about the God thing. I don't believe him about that, but I trust pretty much everything else that he has to say, right? No, that wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense. If a person claims to be God, then they should either be believed or they should be discredited. It's really tough to chart out a middle course on the, oh, by the way, I'm God topic. But Jesus, he, he made this claim. He claimed to be God, and he wasn't all talk. Along with his claims, he performed dozens and dozens of miracles in public where people could see miracle after miracle, and because of that, many people believed him. But at the point of his crucifixion, he was in a humiliated state. He was in a, a weakened state. And the public opinion began to take a sharp turn. The believers, they began to fade into the background, and the skeptics began to outnumber the believers. You see, the, the, the cross was seen by Jesus' followers as just an absolute disaster. What could be worse than that? Your leader, the man that you've devoted your life to, is up on the cross, that was game over. That was you lose for his followers. But for his enemies, it was seen just as an unmitigated victory. This was especially true of the religious leaders, the ones who had plotted against Jesus to get him on the cross in the first place. To them, the cross, that was the ultimate vindication that they were right all along about who Jesus really was. That their version of the truth, that what they had been saying, their story, that was the true story, and that Jesus was a fraud. And the cross, it also emboldened their opinions. Hear what they say as he hung there dying. In verse 35, it says, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. So the cross validated the opinion that they held that Jesus was an absolute fraud. And so they're saying, you're the Messiah that we've been expecting. You're the Christ. You're the chosen one. You were sent from God and you claim to be God himself. What an absolute fake. They're saying this con artist up here on the cross, he's finally getting what he's really deserved all along. And they say, you know what? Save yourself from this mess. If you save yourself from this mess, then maybe we'll reconsider. And in this way, they just, they mock him as a fraud. There were also Roman soldiers there, of course. And the Roman soldiers who crucified him, they, they also mocked him. For them, it was less about his God claim and that he was a fraud. For them, it was more just about entertainment at the expense of a madman, who to them, Jesus clearly was. We read in verses 30, uh, 36 and 38, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So the Romans, they, they really couldn't care less about if Jesus claimed to be God. That was, that was Jewish stuff. They didn't concern themselves with that as much. The Roman justification for his crucifixion was that by claiming to be king, which Jesus did claim, that he was setting himself in opposition to Caesar, who of course was the only true king. To any rational thinker, there was no king but Caesar around. And so they mocked Jesus like the lunatic that they thought that he was. And that's why they placed that sign above him on the cross that said, this is the king of the Jews. 
It's not to honor him. Obviously, it was sarcastic. Same reason he had the crown of thorns on his head as a mock crown. And then just as the religious leaders had said, if you're the Messiah, go ahead and save yourself. So the soldiers, they say, if you are king, go ahead and save yourself. And they mock him as a madman. But then there's one more individual who also mocked him. And in verse 39, we read, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So this man who's up there, also condemned alongside Jesus, hours from death, he didn't so much care whether Jesus was a fraud or whether he was insane. In the moment, this man hanging on a cross with a really big problem, he's a utilitarian. And to him, Jesus is a utility. And his attitude to the all-important question that we're asking today of who is Jesus is that unless you can help me now, I really don't care who you are. Save yourself and us. That's what he says. Save yourself and us. And so from his vantage point, it seems clear that Jesus is not in a position to help himself, let alone anyone else. And so he joins in the mocking. But then there's a second criminal. Second criminal has the exact same problem as the first criminal. The second criminal is also on a cross. His life, he knows, it only has hours or minutes left in it. Same problem, but a very different perspective and a very different answer to the question of who is Jesus. Verses 40 through 42, we read this. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So there's two men here. Neither one of them has any more oxygen to spare than Jesus. If you remember, part of the, the horror of being crucified on a cross was that you, in order to get a good breath, you had to pull up on the nails in your hands and lift yourself up, push up with your feet on the nail in your feet in order to just get enough oxygen for a decent breath. So neither one of these man, men has any more breath to spare than Jesus, but one of these men chooses to use the little bit of oxygen that he has in order to rebuke Jesus, chide him, mock him. And then the other chooses to use his breath to agree with Jesus, to agree with Jesus about who he claimed to be. And in doing so, this man affirmed the important truths, two important truths about Jesus that are really relevant for you and I today and are the answer to this question, who is Jesus? The first we see here where he says, um, when he says, we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the first thing this man affirms is that Jesus was guiltless. He was guiltless. He was without guilt. This is important because Jesus was on the cross for a reason. He had come there for a mission, and that was to stand in our place as a substitute and take the punishment that we deserve. And because of this, he had to be guiltless. He had to be without his own sin. If Jesus had been guilty of sin, then it would have been like this one criminal over here saying, you know what, I want to be a substitute for this criminal over here. Impossible, right? That could never happen because this criminal, he's got his own debt to pay. How could he ever pay the debt and pay for the guilt of this other criminal when both men are guilty? But Jesus, being free from his own guilt, was qualified to be a substitute for the guilt of others, starting with this one man. But guiltlessness 
is not the only qualification to be a substitute for sin. There's another. Jesus also needed to be a divine substitute. He needed to be a God-in-flesh substitute. That's the second thing that this thief realized. Why would this be necessary? Last week, last week when Bevan um, was talking about the previous statement, he talked about how when we, when we do wrong, we tend to think of it only as between us and the person that we have wronged or the person that we have sinned against. So, for example, if I were to speak harshly toward my wife and, um, and sin against her in that way, then we would think that the case file for that instance would read Andrea, my wife's name is Andrea, Andrea versus Ethan. But in reality, God is the one who is the author of the law, and in his eyes, the case, fi- the case file actually reads God versus Ethan. Not just between me and my wife. No, this is ultimately between me and God. Ultimately, when we sin, God is the one that we have wronged. And if God is the one we've wronged, then no one less than God himself can stand in our place and absorb the punishment that we deserve. And if we look closely, we see that the criminal on the cross, he realized that this conversation he was having, he wasn't talking to a mere man. He wasn't talking to a mere teacher or prophet. He was talking to something more than that. A major theme of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God. It's a phrase he used over and over. 31 times alone in, in the book of Luke that we're looking at today, he used this phrase, the kingdom of God. So question, in the kingdom of God, who is the king? Well, of course, in the kingdom of God, God is the king. A similar phrase that Jesus used was the kingdom of heaven. And so, similar question. Who is the king of the kingdom of heaven? Well, surely no one other than God is the king of the kingdom of heaven, right? So, bearing that in mind, here again the language that this criminal uses in his appeal to Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So what's this man's final last recorded word here? His last word is kingdom. And whose kingdom? Well, your kingdom, Jesus's kingdom. With his final words, this man acknowledges that Jesus is king, and in doing so, he affirms that he is exactly who Jesus has publicly been claiming to be all along, that he is king over all, God in flesh, able to pay for sins. So who is Jesus? This is the most important question that we can wrestle with, that we need to nail down in our lives. And when we do, we see that Jesus was guiltless, that he was God in flesh, and as such, he was qualified to be a substitute and take on himself the punishment of others, the guilt of others. But once we answer this question, we need to turn, we need to ask the second question, the second most important question, and that is, in light of who Jesus is, who am I? In light of who Jesus is, who am I? It's a very existential existential sounding question. Who am I? But the Bible actually has a lot to say about it. And it says, it answers this question without being vague or or, or mystical. It's very straightforward. And two things that we're going to focus on today are two things that the criminal on the cross could and did understand. The first of those is that in light of who Jesus is, it is clear that I am loved by God. I am loved by God. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he did not have to be on the cross. He didn't have to be there another moment. At any point, he could have left the cross, ended the suffering, ended the mocking. He could have set 
everything, everything right. He could have left the cross at any moment. But the fact that he did stay and suffer and die is the greatest evidence of his love for each of us. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Each of us, from the criminal on the cross to us here today, can say with confidence that we are loved by God because he didn't leave the cross, because he laid down his life for us. And this really is the most important thing that we need to understand about ourselves. And we would prefer to stop here. This is a good stopping point, right? I am loved by God. But the criminal understood something else about himself that we also need to understand. And that is not only am I loved by God, but I am guilty. Just as Jesus is guiltless, I am guilty. And this is a less pleasant reality than the first. But for the man on the cross, it was actually a pretty easy admission. Notice he said, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. So we don't know this man's exact crimes, but evidently he had no qualms with the justice of his conviction. He was justly condemned. But then what most of us, what many of us, most of us fail to realize is that like this, too, like this man, we too stand condemned. You see, this man was actually under two layers of condemnation. And the first layer is the obvious one. He had committed a crime that under the Roman judicial system was a capital offense and it would result in his death. So both criminals were very acutely aware of this layer of condemnation. But then what one criminal missed that the other criminal caught is that there was another layer of condemnation. And that's the layer that each of us is found to be under as well. And it comes not from rebellion against any human law, not from rebellion against any human government. It comes from rebellion against God himself. The Bible calls that sin. And it results not in a physical death row, but in a spiritual death row, facing a sentence of eternal separation from God. And one criminal, he could only see his physical condemnation. This other criminal, he saw past that first layer and he saw his spiritual condemnation as well. You and I, we can easily be like the first criminal. We can become so consumed with this life and with improving this life or with extending this life and with squeezing every moment and every pleasure out of this life that we can, that we never come to terms with the reality that we stand guilty and condemned before God. But if like the second criminal, we lift up our eyes beyond our present situations, beyond our circumstance, and call out to God, we can find the same freedom from condemnation that he found from Jesus. One of the verses in the Bible that just over the years has been the most personally meaningful to me, one of those that I've kind of just gone back to and back to over the years is Romans 8.1. It says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How would this be possible? For the answer for this, we're going to turn to our final question, and that is, in light of who Jesus is, and in light of who I am, what will I do about it? What am I going to do about it? If I stand guilty before God, and if I believe that Jesus suffered as a guiltless sacrifice to pay for my sins, and absorb the punishment that I deserved, 
then what am I going to do about it? There are two things that we see here from the thief on the cross that answer that question for us as well. The first is that he asked forgiveness. Asking forgiveness, it starts with admitting wrong, which we've seen he did this. He didn't put up a Uh, any pretense. He didn't deny that he had done wrong. He admitted that. So asking forgiveness starts with admitting wrong, and it ends with seeking mercy. This man appealed to Christ for mercy. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He asked for forgiveness of sin. The second thing that he did is he repented of sin. And this is the same response that's required of you and I, to repent. When I say repent, I mean to bow before Jesus as king, acknowledge him as king, bow before king, him as king, and commit to whatever amount of time we have remaining, obediently following him. And for the criminal, the amount of time that he had remaining was just, it was minutes or, or maybe a couple hours. We don't exactly know. He didn't have a lot of time to work with. He basically sought forgiveness, repented of his sins, and died. But we see that that was enough. And we know that's enough because of what Jesus said to him. And this is the statement from Jesus on the cross that we're focusing on today. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' words to this man should give great hope, a lot of hope for the rest of us. Because if salvation had to be earned, it would have been impossible for this man He had absolutely no time to work with. And so if salvation meant doing enough good to cancel out the bad that we've done, then he would have had no opportunity. And because he had no opportunity, he would have had no hope. But that just isn't how guilt works. When it comes to guilt, you're either guilty or not guilty. And in his final moments, this man went from a verdict of guilty before God to not guilty before God. The substitute of Jesus was sufficient and did not need to be supplemented by anything else that he could do. It was sufficient. And that's why Jesus could say, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, come back in another life and try again, be a little bit better your next time around, and maybe then you can be with me in paradise. He didn't say, go to purgatory. He didn't say, go to this other holding place where you can work out the rest of your salvation or or maybe you can suffer and and pay off the remainder of debt and then you can be with me in paradise. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise, pointing to his grace. So in one sense, this man's story shows us that it is never too late to be saved by Jesus. And that's incredible news. In another sense, answering these three questions that we've talked about today, it's not something that we want to be cavalier with or something that we want to postpone or or put off. The reality is that we will all die. In fact, presently, the death rate in the U.S. stands at 100%. I don't know if you knew that. It's been plateaued there for a number of decades. We all know that it's coming. That's no surprise to us. Yet, we seem to have a strong aversion to actually thinking deeply about it, about serious things like that. We know it's coming, but we do not really like to think about it. I talked with a man recently who told me that he thought that as he got older and begun to near the end of his life, he was going to begin then paying attention to God, paying attention to spiritual things like these questions that we're asking today. He explained that his thinking was just that the closer he got to to death, 
the more urgent it would become to him and the more seriously he would take being prepared for it. And to an extent, I actually really get where he's coming from. That line of thinking, to a degree, makes sense to me. If I'm, if I'm going on a trip, I'm not usually worried weeks in advance that, oh no, what if, I, what if I forget to pack my suitcase for that trip? I know that the night before the trip, if not sooner, the urgency is gonna kick in, and at some point, I'm gonna throw a bunch of clothes in my suitcase, and I'm gonna be ready to go. I'm not gonna miss my flight. I know when the plane is taking off, and, and so I'll, I'll be ready. Even if I'm up late the night before, I'm not gonna end up at John Wayne or LAX with an empty suitcase saying, oh no, what happened? <laughs> Uh, but translating this mindset to spiritual matters has some serious problems attached to it. One of those is that we just obviously don't know when we are going to die. We don't know when that plane is taking off, and we're at serious risk, if this is our mindset, of missing that flight. Another reason is that if we do this, we actually waste a lot of time. You see, God, he's not just a, a salvation dispenser. He's not just in the salvation business to, to, to pass that out here and there. He actually wants a relationship with us, with each of us. That's why he died, to restore a relationship with us. You see, God, God is a master restorer, and he loves nothing more. It gives him so much pleasure, pleasure to take the broken pieces of our lives and put them back together. And with that in mind, we don't want to waste any time without him in our lives, without that relationship. But then there's another reason not to delay, and that is that we don't know that if, if at the end of our life, we'll actually have eyes to see Jesus. The first criminal, he was, just, he was just yards away from where Jesus was, and he completely missed it. Even with death staring him right in the eye, just a few yards away from Jesus, he was so focused on his temporal situation and his immediate problem that he missed it. Granted, it is hard to imagine having a worse immediate problem than this man had on his plate. I get that. But you and I, we're apt to be distracted by much less than his immediate problem. We can spend our lives so focused on what we think are life's biggest problems, just be mad at God because he won't fix what we think needs fixing, that we actually miss the fact that he's offering to solve our biggest problem. And that is solve the problem of our guilt before him and offer us eternity with him in paradise. So answering these three questions, it's, it's not something that should be put off. But at the same time, the appeal to treat them with urgency is not an appeal to make a rash decision. Investigation is an ind indispensable step. It would make no sense to say this is one of the most, this is the most important decision that you can make in your life. So go ahead and just bypass due diligence here and just skip straight to the decision. So if you aren't sure that you can agree with Jesus about who Jesus is with intellectual honesty, then I would encourage you not to make a rash decision about that, but instead to launch a serious investigation. Not a rash decision, but a serious investigation. Gather the facts and decide for yourself, is he a fraud? Is he a madman? Or is he, as he claimed to be, is he king over everything? The answer to this question really matters. When I was in college, I, was, I thought I had the book up here, but it should be on the screen. I got this book. 
It's more than a carpenter. Uh, this was a really helpful starting point for me as I was kind of going through my own investigation with this question, who is Jesus? In the book, the author is basically asking the same question that we're asking here today. He's saying, is Jesus, you know, he was by, by profession, he was a carpenter. Is that all that he is? Or was he something more? He gets into questions like, is the Bible actually a reliable record for us today? Is the resurrection of Jesus real? Where does science come into play in these things? So some really helpful questions that he asks and deals with. And, uh, you know, not every answer is in there, but it's a, it's a great starting point. It was helpful for me, and I know it's been helpful for a lot of other people's. And so we have copies of these available today for free. And they're out there on the, on the Welcome Center that I think Bevan mentioned earlier. And so if you're looking to launch your own investigation and really get to the bottom of this first question, who is Jesus, then feel free to stop by and grab one of those books before you head home today. But whether it's that book, another book, or whatever it is, I would encourage you not to make a rash decision, but also not to delay to launch a serious investigation and answer at least the first of those three questions, who is Jesus? Let's pray. God, we confess that we often spend our days, weeks, months, and years just running from one thing to the next, focused on what is before us, and we often don't ask the questions that really matter, um, whether it's these questions or whether other questions, God, we tend to, we tend to be more surface people. And so <clears throat> we just confess that, and we ask that you would help us to think beyond that, and we ask that as we commit ourselves to that process, that you would reveal truth for us, to us, that we, you would help us to find what is true as we are committed to seeking it out. God, we thank you for the example of this man. You didn't have to include his words. The book of Luke would still be great without it, <laughs> but you included those for us to learn from. Thank you for his words and his example and the example of the grace that you showed him. And God, I pray that, that each of us would, uh, would find that grace and that we would be able to spend our days within a relationship with you as you restore us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.